You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. Well, it looks like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. Yes, we know that Mondays can really suck, but today... We have a badass podcast, and our guest is none other than Fred Eichler. And uh, if you don't know who Fred Eichler is, you're going to learn a little bit today. But if you want more information on him, just Google Fred Eichler, and uh, you'll know that he's been in the hunting industry for a while. He's a mountain hunter, uh, elk, uh, mule deer, antelope, bear. He's pretty much killed everything in North America. He's, uh, He's a known outfitter. And, uh, yeah, he's an American badass bow hunter, and he does a, a lot of his bow hunting traditional style, which, in my opinion, kind of elevates his badassness. So, uh, really good conversation with him today, and, and hopefully this podcast puts a smile on your face or, or uh, makes your Mondays suck just a little bit less. I don't really know what else to say. Had a really, really cool weekend it started off a little rough. If you guys follow me on social media, you know that I am debating or not whether to change my release from a wrist release to a, a T-handle thumb release. Now, I went to a local sporting goods store and I was trying out the thumb release and the archery tech there was giving me some pointers on of how he kind of does this thing with his wrist and and uh, it then it it the thumb kind of goes with it, whatever. Well, it wasn't working for me. So I pulled my head away to look at the, my hand to see what I was doing wrong. And in that instant, the release went off, the bow ripped it out of my hand, slapped me right in the face. And I ended up having to go to the emergency room and get three stitches in my chin because of user error. So I felt like a huge douchebag. Uh, <laughs> I felt like a, a tool, especially sitting there in front of all these guys 
um, who, 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 uh, are trying to give me pointers on how to shoot. It just made it seem like I had never shot a bow before. So here I am walking out of this sporting goods store, just dripping blood all over my shirt with my little girl and my son and my wife all looking at me like we're not with him. So, but the absolute funniest part of this whole thing is I'm sitting in the emergency room and there, there was, rooms for seriously injured and then there was rooms for guys like me who just needed a couple stitches well the curtain sitting like there was a curtain dividing my little area from another little area and all i could hear was voices and uh i hear this lady and she's she sounds uncomfortable she sounds older and i'm guessing it was her husband who was also an older gentleman if i had to guess i'd say early 70s um, maybe even mid 70s and uh through listening to the doctor talk she must have dislocated her shoulder from a fall and was not uh was not you know was not able to use her her arm well i guess it happened before so the doctor was going in to set the shoulder back into place and as the doctor is doing that, the husband is telling his wife what he wants her to make him for dinner when they get home. I, I think we got some pork chops in the freezer you can make me. And uh, I, I always like cornbread with that. <laughs> I, just, I just started laughing out loud because as this woman is getting her shoulder put back into place, this guy's telling her what... Uh, he wants for dinner. That's real old school. So uh, I had to get a laugh at that. But today we are doing a podcast with Fred Eichler. Awesome podcast. You guys are going to enjoy it. But first, let's hear from Exodus's Matt Klein of why they decided to start Exodus Trail Cameras. Uh, you know, the biggest thing I believe that got us to this point is just frustration, not being happy with the products that were out there on the market, wanting to see better options on the market, looking around at all the, all the hype and the buzz and the endorsements that go on in this industry and wanting to see products, at least in the trail camera side of things that we could get into, um, that were built solid, that were backed with great customer service and that would last longer than two or three years was, was really the biggest thing for us. As always, if you guys are interested in finding out more information about Exodus trail cameras, be sure to visit exodusoutdoorgear.com. And if you do decide to purchase at the time of purchase online, enter the code nine fingers. And that is the number nine with the word fingers after it, no spaces. And that's going to get you a $20 discount off of your order. And now let's get into this week's podcast with Fred Eichler. All right, Mr. Fred Eichler, how's it going today? Going great, Dan. How are you, sir? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I I know uh, I'm excited to have this conversation with you, and I know that uh, before we got on the phone, you said you're pretty good at BSing, so uh, you're going to do just fine on this podcast. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, when it comes to hunting or fishing, I enjoy, I enjoy talking about it. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Well, you know... I'm the kind of guy who kind of flies by the seat of my pants, so this uh, this conversation will probably be all over the place, but I think the best thing to do is just to start and ask you how your 2015 hunting season went. You know what? It was awesome, Dan. You know, I, I think, you know, I also run an outfitting business, 
um, pulls our outfitter. So we uh, we guide quite a few hunters, um, both archery and muzzleloader, rifle, a little bit of everything. But uh, had a pretty incredible season. I think we ended the year with 34 elk harvested, um, 26 antelope, uh, few bears, and uh, quite a few mule deer as well. So great season for us. Uh, spring turkey even ended up great. I think we ended up with 28 uh, spring turkey. So season was awesome. Me and my wife also had a great year. So did the boys. So uh, harvested some nice elk and white tail, mule deer, a little bit of everything. So I, I certainly can't complain. Been, it's, it's, it's always fun, something I love to do. Right, right. So I, I take it with uh, the animals that you said you harvested, Full Draw Outfitters is based out of the west somewhere. Yep. Where, where are you guys based out of? Yeah, we're based out of uh, Aguilar, Colorado, which is southern Colorado, not too far from New Mexico. We live at about uh, 7,000 feet. And we guide not only on our ranch, but we lease a little over 100,000 acres of private ground. And then I'm permitted on 1.3 million acres of wilderness area. So I've got quite a bit of country. Right. I mean, that that's a that's a lot of ground. How how much time is for for you is spent in the field finding animals, glassing, you know, documenting where they at, you know, historical data and all that stuff. How much time do you spend out actually in the field? Man, between the TV shows and the guiding, um, I probably spend close to nine months a year doing something outdoors, whether that's checking trail cameras, whether that's actually in the field guiding hunters, setting tree stands, setting ground blinds. Uh, you know, I, I run trail cameras all year. It uh, helps me with a little bit of everything. It helps me with not only keeping track of what the animals are doing all year, but also on, you know, the number of calves or the number of fawns that are doing well, uh, bear cubs you know, turkeys, a little bit of everything. And plus I enjoy watching them all year. I enjoy watching the, you know, the elk come in one day with antlers, the next day they've dropped in the, you know, to be in the, in the spring. And, you know, same thing with them growing up in velvet. Um, the other big part of it is setting up tree stands and ground blinds. It's a, you know, it's a lot of, a lot of work. And uh, like, for example, next week we start uh, setting up antelope blinds for the upcoming antelope season. And I'll usually have as many as 50 uh, ground blinds set up for antelope hunters. So, you know, it's uh, it's always something all year. That's that's for sure. But it's mostly mostly revolves around uh, either hunting or farming or or uh, you know our, our small cow herd. So right. got got something going. All so year. you mentioned before we you know started recording that you roughly run about 170 guys a year through your outfitting business. How I mean, how do you keep all that organized? My wife. <laughs> she's amazing uh, yeah if it was up to me guys would get handwritten notes uh you know hey uh i'll see you it'd be a little posted note and uh i would forget half the time but uh my wife well also i have uh danny ferris his wife lisa ferris help out a bunch uh i've got uh eight just great guides uh that that you know are, are super experienced hunters both bull hunters and rifle hunters and uh they help out a bunch so it's uh it's pretty slick. Danny, one of the guys that helps out here, he's a second-generation outfitter. So is uh, Ryan, one of the other guys that guides here. Um, you know, he's a second-generation outfitter. So, you know, the guys have, have literally grown up in the hunting industry and have a lot of experience. So, you know, if it wasn't for some really experienced guys and, and you know, my boys, which also help guide. Actually, one of our sons guided a 
you know, one of the biggest elk that we ended up harvesting last year. So he said he wanted his own parking spot and wanted to be a <laughs> guide of the year. <laughs> but uh, it's uh, it's a good time. I mean, everybody from, from the youngest to, to the oldest got to chip in. And uh, my wife not only helps run the office with uh, Lisa, but my wife also guides as well. So it's a, it's, it's really uh, uh, quite quite the operation with a lot of people that help out. Well, now, you know, now that we're talking a little bit about the outfitting business, um, I recently got an email from a guy who wanted me to, you know, start talking about, you know, outfitters and what, you know, and I've personally never used an outfitter ever in my life. What are, I guess, when a hunter decides to choose an outfitter, whether it's for whitetail in the east or, you know, elk or antelope or mule deer out west, what are some things that a guy needs to look for aside really from price that, that makes an outfitter good, you know? Great question. And and I, I I look at this from a bunch of different angles because not only am I an outfitter, but I also hunt with quite a few outfitters. Uh, For example, the Ford outfitter show that I do, um, the whole concept of that show is we go to different outfitters that use Ford trucks and, and we show how they use it. But we basically interview the outfitter, uh, their business. And so I learned from each of them as well. But it's a, there's so many questions, and, and really it goes back to any relationship is about communication. Um, that's, what my, that's what my wife tells me. But <laughs> um, when, you, uh, when, when you go with an outfitter, usually if there's an issue, it's because either you or the outfitter misunderstood each other. I advise guys, if you're going to go on an archery hunt with an outfitter, then make sure it's an outfitter that understands archery hunting. Uh, make sure he's either an, an archery hunter himself or make sure that his guide's an archery hunter. Um, I've gone to camps with guys that were super outfitters, but maybe they didn't understand bow hunting. And so when you, you, know, when you see an animal or the way a tree stands hung, you know, there's an animal out there 80 yards away, and they're looking at you like, oh, gosh, that's an easy shot with a, with a rifle. Let's, let's right. get it done. So, right. you know, really – if you're a muzzleloader hunter, if you're a rifle hunter, no matter what you like to do, make sure the outfitter kind of specializes in that or has people that, that, you know, work for him that specialize in that. One of the other big things is, is ask about success rates. Um, success rates are very important, I think, to give people a realistic expectation. Um, for example, what I've done um, with my outfitting business is every week I list exactly how many people are in camp, I list exactly how many people have shots and how many people don't have opportunities and how many people harvest. Because from an outfitter standpoint, if I have, let's say, six hunters in camp and all six hunters have shots, but only three of them end up harvesting animals, well, that's a 50% success rate. However, I've got a 100% success rate on shot opportunities, on guys getting shots in range. So that's really important because I think it lets guys know what to expect. Now, at the same time, I've got other hunts, like a four-season rifle hunt, that may have less of a, you know, less of a chance of, of harvesting an elk, but it may be a little cheaper hunt. Right. But guys can look at that and go, okay, I'm going to play the odds. The other thing to do is, is to be honest with your outfitter on what kind of shape you're in. I have guys call up sometimes and say, hey, what are my odds of harvesting an elk? And I'll say, well... How well do you shoot your bow or your rifle or your muzzleloader? And what kind of shape are you in? If the guy tells me he's 5'2 and 350 pounds, well, <laughs> I'm going to tell him that he's got a lot less percentage of harvesting an elk than a guy that tells me he's, 
you know what I mean? Five, two and, you know, 89 pounds, right. <laughs> you know? Right. So it's uh, one of those things that, you know, being honest about your shooting ability, being honest about the kind of shape you're in and then the type of hunt you want. Um, you know, we used to run some horseback hunts and, and still do occasionally, but a lot of times I would have guys book a horseback hunt because that's what they really wanted to do. But when they came out here, we found out they had never been on a horse before. You put the guy on a horse for four or five hours, getting him into an area, and he's so sore and uncomfortable that he's that he's not enjoying himself. Right. You know what I mean? The first day of the hunt, he's sore and stiff. So, you know, when you when you communicate back and forth and make sure you understand the odds of, of being successful, what hunters have done in the past, I think that's really key. And I'm sorry I'm going on so much about no, no, this, this, but is it's perfect. something that... That it, it means a lot to me, and and I suggest guys when they question outfitters, you know, don't just ask for that reference list. For example, every outfitter has that prepared reference list of cousins and great friends, or you know, <laughs> clients that had these amazing hunts. Right. So of course, everybody you call on the reference list is going to go. That guy is amazing. Right. I tell guys that when I call an outfitter, a lot of times I will ask for a list of people that didn't harvest an animal. Right. If you want a true recommendation, say, give me a list of some of the guys that didn't harvest with you last year. Now, some guys won't do that. And if they won't do that, then I'm not willing to hunt with them. Right. If a guy says every single one of his hunters kill, well, I'm not going to hunt with him either because he's either being dishonest or he's hunting high fence. Right. <laughs> so that's not my gig either. Right. So, you know, I want a list of the guys that maybe went out with the outfitter and didn't harvest because if I talk to them on the phone and they say, Hey, listen, I had a great hunt. I saw a bunch of elk or a bunch of whitetails or whatever it is I'm after, but I didn't make the shot. Or maybe, you know, man, the animals were there, but, you know, we got two foot of snow and, you know, we couldn't get out to the area. I, I, you know, did, the, the, did you feel the animals were there? Did you feel the guy had a, you know, a big enough area to hunt? Did you feel the guides were good guides? I get a lot of information from talking to hunters that either weren't successful or, or missed an animal, you know, from those guys, than the guys that, of course, went out and just had this amazing hunt. So, you know, if you do things like that, um, the other thing that I encourage guys to do is talk to a game warden in the area. Right. Um, talk to a local game warden and, you know, find out if the guy you're going with is a straight-up outfitter. Make sure he's licensed. Uh, make sure he has, you know, insurance. Make sure that, you know, he's not an outfitter that, you know, is uh, breaking the law and that's going to put you into a bad situation. Um, there's cases in Colorado where guys have taken paying clients and taken them on private land that they didn't have permission to go on. Right. So then all of a sudden they have a confrontation with a, you know, irate landowner or a game warden says, what are you doing here? And here's the poor client going, Hey, I, I paid this guy for a hunt. I trusted that he was going to do right by me. So, you know, I think it's really important to, to check as many references as you can, because if you don't and you go out and have a bad hunt, well, really, it's kind of a shame on you. You know right. what I mean? Right. Yeah. What What makes What makes a good outfitter or an average outfitter different from a great outfitter? Good question. I'm going to try and answer this as honestly as I can without being biased, because right. of course I like to think that I I, I fall into the category of, of of a good one. Um, I think being honest is huge. Being honest about expectations being honest about the shape you have, you know, have to be in or need to be in, um, being honest about the size of the area that they have to hunt. Um, I, I was on a whitetail hunt one time 
that uh, <laughs> I certainly won't mention the outfitter's name, but you know, he said, man, this is going to be a great hunt. We got a lot of whitetails in the area you're going. Nobody's been in that tree stand. And I'm like, hot dog. I get up into the tree and there's fresh cigarette butts on the bottom of the tree. <laughs> and, and, and I think there was five different screw holes from people putting in bow hangers that were leaking sap that were fresh. So, you know, I, I didn't, needless to say, I didn't, I didn't see any deer on that trip, but obviously that stand had been hunted a lot that season. So I think being honest is, is key. Uh, honest about the, you know, the amount of property that you have, that you have permission to hunt. Um, being honest about the success rate. You know what I mean? I tell guys sometimes, Hey, look at my, look, look at the last 20 years. You can pull up how we did last year, how we did the year before the year before. And you can see that, you know, maybe our archery antelope success rate was 70% on average or 80% on average over the last five years. Well, then that guy has a pretty good understanding that if he brings 10 guys and it's an average year, well, they can expect that seven or eight out of the 10 of them will harvest or at least have a shot. So, yeah, those are some of the questions to me, I think, and some of the things that make an outfitter either just okay or, or really good. And a lot of outfitters don't do it full time. Um, some outfitters, uh, I'll say, have a real job, but, yeah. but you know, yeah. they they're uh, you know you get out there and you find out that the guy's a uh, you know I don't know an engineer or uh, you know is an electrician or whatever he is, and then he only takes off a couple weeks and runs out there and charges guys money to take them hunting. Yeah. Well, you know, does that ever work out? Yeah, sometimes it does. But if you've got somebody that spends all year basically planning or you know, scouting or setting tree stands, moving tree stands, planting food plots, doing things to help improve the habitat. Right. Well, odds are that guy's going to have a little better hunting opportunity for you. Right. So, you know, you probably deal with a, a wide variety of people, um, you know, coming. I love that. And, and there, and we all know that there's, there's certain types of people that aren't really happy with anything. So how, as a, as an outfitter, do you deal with maybe a difficult client who's thinking, okay, well, I paid you to take me on an elk hunt, so I better shoot a damn elk? <laughs> well, again, that goes back to the to the honesty and, and, and that first initial conversation. Um, if I talk to a guy that says, man, I'm not going to be happy unless I shoot a, you know, Boone and Crockett mule deer or, you know, or unless I harvest an elk for sure, then I say, well, I'm, I'm not who you want to go with. You know what I mean? Then, you know, we're, we're, we're about the hunt. We're going to do everything we can in our power legally to try and get you an opportunity in an animal. But, you know, it, it's still hunting. Right. So, you know, every once in a while there's, there's uh, because it is such a wide variety of people. I take people that have almost zero experience to guys that are more experienced than I am. I've taken guys that, you know, uh, you know, a $6,000 elk hunt is just a drop in the bucket. You know what I mean? That's, yeah. that, that's nothing to them to guys that have saved up for 15 years and they're going to go on one guided hunt their whole life. And it's, it's, it's super important, you know, for them to enjoy the whole experience. You know, they want to see the sunrises, the sunsets, they want to spend their time out in the field. So, you know, again, when you say dealing with a difficult client, you know, have I ever had any? Yeah maybe one out of a hundred, but usually it may be a, a personality conflict. And that's, what's nice about having multiple guides. I mean, there's been some guys that, you know, I'm a talker. I like talking and joking around and, you know, I have some guys that are like, man, I just want to sit by myself all day and 
I don't want to be around a guide. No problem. We'll, we'll, we'll set your hunt up that way. So, you know, it's more about being relatable, trying to work with different people, but also knowing exactly what somebody wants before they come out. So I know if I have what they want and, you know, I know that they're the type of client that I want to take. Right, right. All right, now we're going to switch gears a little bit. We're going to talk about you, and we're going to talk about – we're going to go all the way back, all right? And we're going to talk about when you were a kid, who got you into hunting or, or bow hunting or whatever was first for you? Right, it was hunting first, and that would have been my father. He was an avid hunter, still is. And, of course, like a lot of kids, it was BB gun, 22, 410, you know, small game, squirrels and rabbits, and then – you know, slowly graduating up to, you know, turkeys and hogs and deer and, you know, and big game. So my dad was an avid muzzleloader and an avid rifle hunter. So that's what I grew up doing. When I was in, oh, I think ninth grade young, I had uh, one of my buddies was uh, shooting a bow. I was like, man, that's, that's really cool. You know what I mean? I had a little toy fiberglass one, but this was like a real compound bow. And I thought it was awesome. So I talked my dad into getting me a, a used Ben Pearson at the time. And I remember I was so proud of that bow, so excited, and I wanted to go hunting with it. And my dad was like, no, you're not hunting with it until you can hit a pie plate. That was the big thing back then, you know, <laughs> until you can hit something the size of a pie plate every single time at 20 yards, you know, with a broadhead, you know what I mean? One, right. you're not going to go. And two, if you go, you better not shoot unless it's something, you know, in your, you know, in your range. So I proved to dad that I could you know, shoot accurately enough to where he would take me out. And, uh, you know, I've, I've told this story a few times. I actually wrote an article in Bowhunter Magazine about it. But it was so neat and, and lucky as well because I was inexperienced and I ended up finding a, a young deer, a little two-by-two, two, probably a year-and-a-half-old whitetail, and we just happened to bump into each other. And it was his unlucky day because I was shaking so bad. How I hit that deer, I'll never know. But uh, I ended up making a great shot. And the deer may have ducked into it, I'm not sure, but uh, <laughs> I hit him right in the chest, and I did everything wrong. I mean, you know, everything you read, I had been reading Bowhunter Magazine, you know, every single issue, and it was one of those deals where I hit this deer perfectly, and even though I know and knew that you were supposed to wait 30 minutes was the big thing at the time, Dan, I took off running after that deer <laughs> as fast as I could. I mean, uh, he took off with that arrow, hit him, and I didn't want to lose sight of him. But I took off running after him. And fortunately, he dropped only after about 30 to 50 yards. And I literally was there as the air dropped, and I was so excited, <laughs> you know, just beside myself. And my dad came up and was just blown away. He had zero experience bow hunting. Um, I had, of course, grown up, you know, wanting to do it but you know this was my first experience and what was interesting is my dad was so interested in breaking down everything he wanted to see exactly what that arrow had hit he went back and even though i had taken off running running he wanted to go back and look at the blood trail what kind of blood trail did the deer leave and you know it blew him away and me honestly that the, that the deer had gone down in seconds so it turned my dad into a bow hunter. Oh, so nice. even though he got me into hunting, I got him into bow hunting, which was really, uh, really neat for me. And, uh, man, after that, I was hardcore bow hunting. And, and I, raised, you know, our three boys doing it all. So right. they can kind of go their own way, but I wanted to introduce them to all the different ways to hunt. 
so I'm pretty ignorant when it comes to traditional equipment. I've, um, I've never really gotten into traditional. Is that, a, was that a traditional bow that you shot your first deer with? No, sir. It was a, it was a Ben Pearson compound. Okay. And okay. I shot, shot the compound for years. And when I say years, I mean, I was in my early teens. I was in my teens when I shot that first deer. And when I turned, uh, oh, I guess it was about 20 uh, years old, I got my first Palmer recurve uh, that was gifted to me by Jim Widmeyer, who uh, owned an archery shop in Fort Collins, Colorado. And Jim was an avid uh, traditional shooter. And man, I just got so excited and so enthused about the recurve. I, there was a lot of things I liked about it. Plus, one of my archery heroes, Fred Bear, he shot a recurve. So I right. thought, man, this is pretty neat. I want to try this out. And, you know, Dan, if you've never tried it, it is such a neat, it's such a neat weapon to shoot. It just feels natural. It's probably like the difference between somebody using a fly rod and, and a cork and a bobber. You know what right, I mean? Or a cork right. or a bobber and, and, you know, and fishing. It just is a different method. And not that one's better than the other, but it's just another thing to try out. And for me... I feel a lot of times in the field, I'm more efficient with a traditional bow because it's, there's less to it. It's a very simple weapon. You know, there's no sights, um, no release, no, you know, you you don't need a range finder. You know, you just look at what you want to shoot and kind of like throwing a ball, you draw back and shoot. So that allows you to shoot faster. Um, It allows you to shoot at different angles. You know, with a compound, you're pretty much straight up and down. With a recurve, I can lay it almost horizontal. I can bend around a tree, you know, I can even bend it backwards and with finger pressure, rotate the arrow into the riser so I can still shoot that way. So there's a lot of different things you can do with a recurve that make it fun. Um, I think all archery is great and I still shoot a compound, but the recurve definitely is, is my, that, that's, that's my favorite. So how do you make a decision on what you're going to, let's say you're going after a particular animal and it's an archery tag how do you decide whether or not you're going to use your compound or your recurve? Great question. Um, you know, a lot of times it's, you know, the species. So if I've harvested the animal, which for me, I was super excited to try and take all 29 species in North America with a recurve. And it took me a long time, but I did it. But for me, a lot of times it's okay. I've, I've harvested an elk with a, you know, with a recurve, I want to harvest one with a compound now. So I can kind of compare the two and see what's, you know, it, it, was it really easier with the recurve? Is it just that I like that more? You know, what's the difference between the two weapons? And, and there's quite a bit. There's some that give you advantages in certain situations, and that same weapon may be a disadvantage in another certain situation. So it's uh, a lot of times it's just a feel like, huh, you know what, this, uh, this is pretty open country. My shot may be over 25 yards, you know, it may be 35 yards, and in that situation a compound is going to be, you know what I mean? A, a little more of a longer range weapon. So, you know, a lot of times it's just a feel or based on terrain or, you know, how much I've been practicing. So, you know, it's uh, every, every situation is a little different. So when you, you know, you mentioned you got this tr- traditional bow, right? And you now you start to shoot a little bit. Uh, what was the first animal that you killed with your recurve? The first animal I ever harvested with a recurve was a squirrel. Okay. But after that, as far as and I was super excited about it. <laughs> after that, the uh, the first big game I took was a, a doe mule deer, and it was with a good friend of mine that uh, I grew up trapping with, Bly Chadwick, up in you know Fort Collins, Colorado, and and uh, 
we were out hunting together in the mountains and a doe mule deer jumped out of her bed and she was only maybe 15 or 20 yards and uh you know i i ended up you know making a good shot on her and and she only went 60 80 yards and dropped and i was like wow you know i I can do this, you know, this, this, this works. <laughs> yeah. So, so that was my first one. And, and that's really kind of what, uh, what started that, that passion, that, that love affair with the traditional bow. Gotcha. So then as, as time progressed, you know, you're now you're starting to shoot your, uh, your recurve. Are you still focusing? I mean, you're a hunter, so are you still hunting with, uh, firearms like your muzzleloader and your rifle and, and your compound as well? Or, did you ever kind of just do archery or just do firearms? I went strictly, I went strictly archery, and 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 shot the shot shot the recurve for oh gosh, just almost twenty years, I guess, long time, um, and was just just archery, and then um, you know started working, uh, got asked to do a Predator Nation TV show, and the only thing I wasn't shooting at the time traditional with coyotes and bobcats and things like that. Um, so I always used a small bore rifle for, you know, for the predators. So kind of stepped that game up. And as I did more and more of that, um, it started working with uh, like Ford Outfitters and some of the other TV shows that I worked with. Um, there were times where they would say, oh, Fred, it would be neat if you would shoot a, you know, shoot a bear with a handgun or something. And I'm yeah. like, awesome. You know, I carry <laughs> handguns all the time to back up clients or, you know what I mean, to, to carry for protection. So yeah, that would be cool. So one of the things that's been fun for me is is experiencing all the different weapons. You know, I've shot animals with handguns and rifles and muzzle loaders, and you know, I shoot an AR still on the, uh, you know, especially on the uh, predators. But even went to a four five eight SOCOM with a Rock River and shot a bear one time just to experience that. And so it's uh, you know, the archery is still probably ninety percent of what I do, but I also kind of play with a little bit of everything. Yeah, yeah. So. How old were you when you shot your your first bull elk? And if you want to tell that story, if you remember it, with with a with a bow. Oh yeah, yep, I, I definitely do. My 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 very first one was with a compound. It was before I had switched over to the recurve. Um, so it was a cow elk with a compound, and then I shot I think uh, three or four um, cows, uh, cow elk with a recurve. But my first bull. Uh, was public land hunt. Uh, it was in northwestern Colorado, and uh, I was sitting on a trail uh, near a waterhole, and uh, no blind. I was just fully camoed up and sitting in the brush, and heard a twig snap or some branches rustle, and I looked up, and this bull came walking out, and uh, of course my heart was just pounding, and you know the bull gave me a perfect broadside shot with the recurve, and I drew back and. And let fly, and as soon as the arrow hit, I knew it was a good shot. But I was so nervous because it was such a big animal. I hadn't shot an animal that big uh, with a traditional bow, you know, besides a cow. And this bull was bigger than a cow I had ever shot. And I gave it probably 20, 30 minutes. And amazingly, he had only gone, I don't know, 40 to 60 yards, something like that, and was laying in the oak brush. And and it was a it was a cool feeling, you know. They're all trophies to me. The the bulls, the cows, all of them. But you ask about the first bull, and that was the the first bull I harvested with a recurve, and and was pretty uh, pretty pumped about that. So did you have to pack it out very far? Yeah, it was uh, about two two and a half miles. So it took uh, quite a few trips, but uh, everyone they call it a labor of love, and that's 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 truly what it is when you're carrying out a bunch of you know tasty 
elk meat on a backpack, it's a it's a good feeling, even though you're even though you're tired and and sweating a little bit, and you know it's a lot of work. It's a it's a lot of fun at the same time. Right, right. Um, I I beat this on the podcast. I I I beat this horse to death pretty much. But I I always like to say that last year was my very first trip to Idaho. Uh, I went elk hunting, and I spent a majority of the time in a tent because it rained for like. Oh, I, I just remember I was in my tent one time for 18 hours straight. And it's just torrential rain. Yeah, I mean, it was just a constant all-day rain um, for quite a few, you know, a majority of the trip. We got out a couple times, um, and it was just – it wasn't very fun. But or I should say the hunting portion of it was it was not what I wanted, obviously. But the experience was, was awesome. Um, so – I don't know. That's uh, that was. Uh, I, I just there's something about the West. For, you know, I'm a Flatlander. I'm from Iowa. I go out there and I just it's like it's like the field of dreams. You know, come back to the West. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the old thing. Go West, young man. Go West. Yeah, that's right. It's incredible. Everywhere you look is like a postcard. That's right. I mean, it really is. It's, it's the West is is amazing and and has so many opportunities. I mean, I, I'm in a unique spot in the West and Southern Colorado because we've got 10 big game species here in Colorado, 10, right. you know, in the state and literally right behind my house, I've got whitetail, mule deer, elk, bear, mountain lion, turkey, you know, right here. And if I drive 15 to 20 minutes East, I can hunt antelope. And if I drive, you know, 20 to 30 minutes West, I can hunt bighorn sheep. And if I go up to Northwestern Colorado, I can hunt, you know, Rocky mountain goats and, moose and desert bighorn if i draw a tag there's just so many species here um it's it's hard to beat the west for for not only views but also a myriad of, of different species to to go out and chase how hard is it for you to sit in a tree stand um you know what i'm pretty high energy but my wife laughs she doesn't understand it because i'm i'm, I'm one of those guys that kind of go 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 but I can actually sit in a tree stand or a ground blind and just <laughs> slow it down and just enjoy what's around me but i'm I'm one of those hunters that's kind of stubborn. I, I laugh now because a lot of times I'll have a, a cameraman with me filming a show. And I've sat for, you know, seven, eight days straight all day, dawn till dusk, and not seen a thing and been just as excited the next day to go to go right. sit in the same spot. And I've had cameramen look at me and go, what are you doing? Why, why are you so excited to go back there? And I'm like, well, what are the odds that something's not going to come in again? I mean, every day we're increasing our odds, man. You know, I'm just an optimist, you know, and my cameraman will look at me and go, well, did you ever think it was maybe just a bad spot? <laughs> like, well, no, that hasn't occurred to me. You know, it's going to happen. It just may take some time. So right. it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a true passion for it. My wife's the same way. We love watching the sunrises and the sunsets. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, she'll come back or I'll come back from a hunt and they'll, she'll say, how did it go? And I'll go, it was awesome. I, I, you know, I didn't see, you know, what I was after. Maybe I was after an elk or mule deer or bear or whatever, but I saw this and that. And, man, I had squirrels go down and fight in front of the water hole, and this happened and that happened. It's just there's always something to see in the woods. Right. I'm definitely a huge believer of, you know, just just sitting and watching nature. There's more out there than just the elk or just the deer. Right. or just, and it, people. There's people that get so caught up in the the horns the antlers you know i have to kill this animal or people will think of me ruining hunting. yeah exactly amen 
Amen. So, um, in the West, you know, it's a lot different. I mean, in Iowa, it rains, it snows, you know, the weather is not going to kill you necessarily. I mean, unless a tornado comes out of nowhere and that's, you have, you have a warning for that. I mean, there's times when, (laughs) when, when you're probably out in the, um, you know, up, up on the mountain, how does weather play a role? I guess for, for Western hunting, talk to us a little bit about the weather. Well, you know, it it plays a huge factor and a lot of times storms can come up on you when they haven't predicted them. You know, that's the crazy thing about, you know, living in the, in the West is, you know, I've I've checked the weather and said, Oh, it's going to be a bluebird day. And, you know, by, you know, five hours later, you have two foot of snow on the ground. Um, it's really uh, being prepared is huge. Um, I take that responsibility pretty serious, not only for myself, but also for clients I'm with, um, you know, I always carry extra food, extra water. You know, I always have stuff I need to, to light a fire. You know, I, I carry gear to make sure I'm not going to get into, one, a dangerous situation. And, two, I carry gear to where I can, can continue to hunt no matter what the situation I'm in, you know, is going to bring. So, for example, if it's snowing or if it's raining, I actually love to hunt in those conditions for the same reasons that bobcats and mountain lions hunt a lot when the weather is really windy or rainy or snowy because it's so much easier to sneak up on a prey animal. Uh, their main lines of defense, you know, that the vision, you know what I mean, the, the hearing, um, you know, is, 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 it's, not, it's not working for them as good as it normally would. When there's trees and branches whipping around, they don't hear you sneaking up as well. That extra movement in the field makes it easier to sneak up in range. So I try and carry gear so I can hunt any situation because I find a lot of times the best time to hunt is when the weather's nasty. Right. Have you ever been, have you ever been caught somewhere like in a, um, Oh, in a snowstorm or a rainstorm where you thought, uh Oh, I'm in trouble now. Yeah. You know, there's been a couple of times where I've been in some bad situations, um, because of all kinds of situations I've had, planes crash and leave me stranded in the Alaska range. I've had boats flip. I've had horse wrecks. I've had all kinds of stuff. But I think one, one time that I was pretty worried, I actually had a client out. Um, we were hunting mule deer and, uh, a huge blizzard rolled in and, you know, he hit me on the cell phone and he's like, man, I can't, I can't see. I'm, I'm getting down. I just saw a mule deer. And I said, okay, what do you mean? You just 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 saw a mule deer. You, you want to stalk him? He said, "Yeah, I'm, I'm going to try and stalk him because of this blizzard. He's he, you know he he can't see any more than I do." I said, "Okay, great. Well, I gave him permission. I said, go ahead, get down, give it a whirl." And interestingly enough, he's one of the attorneys that works with Easton Arrows. Yeah. So you know it's it's it, it's it's a guy that that's an experienced hunter as well and and kind of in the industry. But he gets down and goes after this deer and. I go out and am close to where he's at, and I'm like, man, I can't see anything. I mean, this is, the snow's piling up. It's getting really bad. And I get a call on my cell phone, and he says, I'm lost. I have no idea where I am. I can't see. I shot the mule deer. And I'm like, that's awesome. That's great. You shot the mule deer. And he said, I'm starting to get really cold. He said, he said can you come find me? And I'm like, holy smokes, I've got, I've got my, my young son in the truck with me. And at the time he was probably only seven. And so I'm like, 
yeah, we've got to find you because I, I don't even know if we can get out of this pasture, you know, to be in this blizzard. So, yeah, we definitely need to be together. So I'm a little worried. So I called my wife and I said, listen, our son's in the truck, but I'm going to leave him for a little bit because I've got to find this guy. So here's where the truck's at. If I don't call you back, you know, we got a full tank of gas, the heater going, he's fine, but you're going to have to get him if I don't call you back. So, of course, she's like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> so the crazy part of that story is I go out into this blizzard, and it, this is a huge ranch we're on. I mean, it's, it's, it's 100,000 acres of contiguous nothingness, and I'm out there walking, and I had a 22 pistol. So I fortunately have him on the cell phone, and – it's going to make me sound really stupid, but I shot the gun in the air and I said, listen, tell me if you hear this gun, I'm going to fire it in the air. So I fired the gun in the air and he goes, did you shoot it? I was like, "Uh oh." <laughs> so I said, all right, I'm going to keep going and I'm going to shoot again. So I keep going and now I can't see anything, but I'm, I'm into this blizzard and, you know, into the woods quite a ways. I shoot again and he's all excited because I could tell he's getting a little nervous too. And he goes, I heard the gun. And I said, great. Which direction? which is the dumbest question you could ask somebody because he couldn't see anything. And he's like, Fred, it was that way. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, that was a really dumb question. So I said, all right. And now I literally, the wind's blowing, the snow's coming down. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to walk another 200 yards from where I'm at. Shoot again. You tell me if it gets lower, you know what I mean, or higher, if it sounds like I'm working your way. So literally we had to kind of work our way to each other that way and uh, i had him mark where the deer was but it was just it was, that was a little nervous one i was a little nervous about that one for a little while it was a uh, touch and go so yeah there's certain times you can get out there where you know it gets a little scary i mean i've hunted and the coldest i've actually hunted in a tree stand here in colorado was negative 26 and that's not counting wind you know wind chill factor that's just temperature so you know i've, I've been in some pretty rough weather conditions but i I try and stay prepared, but that one with my client was a was a little bit of touch and go. Good thing you didn't run out of bullets, or you'd still be. I'm telling you what, buddy, I was nervous. <laughs> that was a bad deal. That could have ended. That could have ended terribly. Uh, you know, it ended up working out all right, but that could have ended really bad. So yeah, now you know. You're... And Ethan probably wouldn't have been happy if I would have uh, killed their attorney. Uh, <laughs> we got a problem. Would... Yeah, yeah, that probably. Fred, listen, we're not going to do the show anymore. <laughs> So, okay, so in your 20s, um, you, you know, you said for a while there you were strictly recurve. When did you start getting into outfitting? You know, I, I started getting into the outfitting um, when I was in my mid-20s with a couple buddies. And the reason was we were trapping. I was a trapper, and not only did I do some damage trapping, uh, damage control trapping for coyotes and beavers and things like that, um, on, on large ranches, but I had some buddies that were, you know, pretty hardcore trappers as well. And I had a job. I left the archery shop after a few years and took a job with a company called Dart International. And, uh, they make that interactive target system company. Uh, you may have seen it. They, uh, there's a life size. It's a big screen and video of animals oh, plays yeah. on the screen. And you shoot an arrow actually at the screen with a blunt and then a overlay graphic comes up showing where your arrow hit in relation to where the kill zone on the animal is. Yeah. So I, I, I got offered a job with that company, which was a lot of fun. I got to travel around the country and, and uh, you know, go to different archery shops all over. And what was interesting is, as I went to these archery shops, the guys in the archery shop would go, oh man, you're from Colorado. 
do you know where I can shoot an antelope or a deer or an right. elk? I was like, well, yeah, you know, I, I trap on this big ranch and yeah, they, they'd probably let you go out there. So it was really kind of funny how it came about and it was from people asking me to take them hunting. So I, I got my outfitter's license and, and, uh, my boss was great about, you know, Hey, if you want to take these guys out, go ahead and, you know, we'll give you some time off to, you know, to go moonlight. And, and so that's what I started out doing with, uh, with a couple good buddies and, Man, it just grew. It, 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 you know, the first year, you know, we took probably 20 guys, and the next year it was like 60 guys, and the next year it was 80 guys. It was just, it just kept growing and growing and growing. So it was really, uh, it was really a neat, uh, really a neat deal because when you're, when you take people hunting, you make some friendships that that you know, that just are, are solid friendships that last you a lifetime. And and uh, it's it's been that way. I still have guys hunting with me now that, you know. It, have been hunting with me for 20 years and that's that's really neat to me they you know they know me i know them and you know they laugh about you know some of the you know some of the old days and you know the, the some of the rough wall tent camps i had compared <laughs> to some of the places that they stay now so it's uh you know it's been been a lot of been a lot of fun so yeah it was kind of kind of random how it you know how it came to be so one of your TV shows is uh, about predator hunting. When did you start getting into predator hunting? Was it because of the television show, or were you doing predator hunting? And I'm not talking about trapping, but predator hunting before the TV show. No, I was an avid trapper and, and predator hunter but before the TV show because I sold hides. Um, that was one of the things I did to offset my income. Uh, managing an archery shop, you don't make a lot of money, and uh, which was fine, but of course I wanted to hunt and you know, have more cool bows and, you know, keep gas in my old Jeep. So, you know, I started, uh, started trapping and, and, you know, shooting and calling coyotes in back with the, uh, you know, with the mouth calls. Cause back then besides the old Johnny Stewart, you know, tape cassette player, there was nothing <laughs> else available. It was pretty much a mouth call or that, uh, big clunky speaker and tape machine that you could lug around. So I was an avid, uh, avid trapper and avid predator hunter. And then, you know, as I, as I started working with Easton bow hunting and, and guys in the industry would come out hunting with me, some of the guys that uh, worked for some of the different channels were like, wow, man, we didn't realize you did this much predator hunting. Because sometimes when they were out with me, you know, deer hunting or, you know, elk hunting, I'd have traps out and we'd check my trap line and do things like that. So um, I got approached and they said, you know, would you be willing to do a predator show? There's a lot of people I think that would like to learn how to not only hunt predators, but, you know, how to skin them. Because, you know, I would go ahead and skin them and stretch them and sell them to fur buyers. So it was really fun. It was something I was already, I was already doing. It wasn't doing something different. It was just taking, you know, a cameraman with me and, and videoing it. So it's, uh, I've been pretty lucky. That's a pretty, pretty fun way to make a living. Now I've read different studies throughout about, you know, predator, a coyote can kill this many fawns or, or this and that. Have you, have you, been able to witness, you know, actually what, let's say a coyote or a bobcat can actually do to a herd of, let's say either elk or, or mule deer or whitetails. Yeah. You know, more so on, on the antelope. And I say that because it's more open country and you can actually witness them killing them. Um, there's also been some, some really good studies done. Um, and it's one of the reasons that uh, Utah actually offers a bounty. I think they've done some of the most research on, on coyote predation. And because of that, Utah actually offers a bounty when you bring in the coyote's ears, you know what I mean, and, and, and pay guys, you know, to help 
deplete that coyote population because it's really devastating on a lot of not only the large game populations, but the small game as well, the things you don't think about, all the songbirds, the rabbits, uh, quail, quail eggs, turkeys, turkey eggs, things like that. So, you know, I love a coyote as much as the next person. I love to hear them howl at night, but they, too many of them can be a real problem. And, it, and, it, and it, it's amazing to me how interlinked everything is. And I'll give you an example before I kind of go back to your to your question. An example that a lot of people don't even think about is, you know, I've run mountain lion hunts in the winter, and I, I guide mountain lion hunters. So I get to spend a lot of time, you know, tracking lions and using my hounds and, and a lot of time around mountain lions. And on average, a mountain lion will kill a big game animal every 7 to 10 days. So be that an elk or a mule deer or whitetail, whatever it is, and it'll feed off it for Oh, you know, five days, six days, and it'll go lay up and come back and feed on it. Well, in areas where there's too many coyotes, what happens is that mountain lion will kill a deer, let's say, and instead of being able to feed off it for days, the coyotes come right in, clean that carcass up, and then that mountain lion has to go out and kill another deer. So you're losing even more deer than you normally would in areas because you've got too many coyotes. So it's interesting how interconnected everything is, but yeah, coyote predation on not only calves. Um, we've had problems out here with calves um, where coyotes are killing our cow calves. I've uh, helped other ranchers out where they came out and were killing sheep or killing killing their calves. Um, predation on antelope herds, they say, is about 70% of the fawn predation is from coyotes. And wow. uh, I've witnessed a lot of that. So, you know, like anything, there needs to be a balance. And so I don't think we could ever shoot out the coyotes. <laughs> they're they're one too smart and and two breed too much and they breed based on you know how many, how much game there is you know if there's not a lot of game then they won't have as many pops if there's a ton of game then they're going to have a lot larger litter so yeah that that managing the coyote population is super important and yes I have witnessed firsthand the effects of coyote predation on not only domestic animals but also wild animals right so you've been around for a while you've you know, you've been basically in the mountains, in the woods your entire life. And even, you know, now that you, you have your outfit, outfitting business, you're able to see nature up close and personal. Talk to us a little bit about how important, con, you know, um, conservation is to hunters, you know, whether you're and, and that's not necessarily about hunters, but how important conservation is to preserve, you know, this, these, this game that we chase. It's the most important thing we do, um, you know, and thanks to, you know, things like the Pittman-Robertson Act, where a percentage of all, you know what I mean, the dollars that, that, that we spend get, get put back into a fund that are used, you know, for state and government agencies to purchase land, to protect areas. You know, if we lose these wild areas uh, that we have, not only are we not going to have the, the game populations, but we're not going to have the same experience for bicyclists and kayakers and people that just like to hike in the mountains or camp. So, you know, because of sportsmen, because of value, you know what I mean, that not only from our dollars, but because of the value that, you know, state and, and you know, the, the government makes from, you know, outdoor recreational people and, and enthusiasts, there wouldn't be the lands set aside to do that. Um, I've been to countries where, because there was no value on them, there was no opportunities like that. All the land was sold or, you know, the animals didn't have value, so they were all shot out in certain areas. So, you know, the, the game divisions and a lot of states have done an amazing job 
And if you look at even the statistics of how many turkeys and, you know, there's a real success story, you know, thanks to hunters and conservationists and, you know, the white-tailed deer and, and, and the elk herds. I mean, we've got as good a hunting opportunities now as we ever had. And a huge reason for that is because of the hunters and, and because of the Division of Wildlife in different states that really make that a priority. And, you know, don't we, we can't fool ourselves. I mean, money drives a lot of things. And money drives conservation. Uh, you know, it, it, it's a fact. If there weren't hunters that were willing to go out there and, and hunt these animals and, and, you know, maybe rely on that really good, clean meat and, you know, they, they'd go out and, and enjoy themselves outdoors, we wouldn't have the money for game wardens and biologists to research and study the populations and also game wardens to protect those same animals um, from people that would, you know, whether whether it's poach them or use them for, you know, reasons they shouldn't be using them for. So uh, it's really, that's that's the root of, of, of everything we do is, is conservation. So, you know, my kids and their their kids and, you know, so it's, so it's a tradition that we can carry on. Perfect. Speaking of kids, and uh, we'll wrap it up here fairly uh, fairly shortly, but, you know, my I told you I was Gabby. No, that's fine. No, that's fine. I uh, I love it. I love it when I don't have to ask very many questions. That way, it's less mistakes for me to make. But in regards to, you know, you got, what, three boys? Is that right? That's correct, sir. Three boys. All right. So I got a son and I got a daughter and I'm huge, you know, I'm a huge nut when it comes to outdoors and, um, you know, living the outdoor lifestyle. Um, how is there, did you ever have to have kind of a walk a fine line with your boys to where you're not pressuring them into doing what you want to do as opposed to what they want to do? If that makes sense. Yes. No, 100% it does. And I was really fortunate because I had a client years and years and years ago, um, an older gentleman that told me his son didn't hunt. And I was like, wow, this guy was a super avid hunter. And I said, man, why doesn't he hunt? And he said, you know, Freddie, I think I pushed him to hunt too much when he was younger. And that really resonated with me because I thought, as much as I'm passionate about it, how could you push somebody to hunt too much? You know, I, I don't get it. And And basically he would take his son out when it was – too cold or when he was ready to go and he would say, no, 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 let's stay a little longer because he really wanted his son to see him harvest something or he really wanted his son to harvest something more than his son did. So I have really tried to, you know, if I take, you know, the kids out hunting or especially when they were younger, I would try and make it fun and not boring. Um, you know, for me, I can sit in a tree stand all day and not move and have a blast. But for a kid, that's an impossibility, <laughs> you know what I mean? But so whenever, you know, if they were bored or if they started to get a little cold, I would turn it into a sword fight with weeds and, you know, well, let's get down. You know, it's not that big of a deal. Let's go play. Let's go chase frogs or let's go see if we can find a turtle or let's go, you know, uh, I have really tried to not push them, which is sometimes difficult because you want that. You know what I mean? I've been on hunts where I thought, man, this is going to be awesome. We're going to go out here and, and spend you know, the whole day elk hunting and an hour into it, mm, one of my boys has lost interest. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. ah, you know, I'm not, I'm not into it. I'm like, all right, cool. Well, let's, uh, let's see who can race back to the truck the fastest or let's see who can, you know, find the coolest track or let's do this. And, you know, so I turned it into a fun experience for him. And, you know, like four nights ago, we took all the kids out and we were shooting frogs with our bows. You know, literally I got, 
I got all three of our boys. The oldest is 21. Uh, the middle one just turned 18, and the youngest is uh, 11. And we all had recurves, and we were, and mom was out there. We're all wading around in mucky water up to our knees to our waist, and we're shooting frogs with the bows. And we're having a blast. We're laughing. You didn't have to be quiet. You know, we're wading around and taking turns shooting frogs. So I've really tried to keep it interesting and different. And, uh, you know, to where they understand the pride of, you know, just like the frog legs, you know, the pride of shooting even something as simple as a frog that we come back and make a whole meal out of and kind of celebrate the meal. And my wife's always been really good about, you know, when we sit down to eat, thanking one of the boys, like, wow, hey, this is, uh, you know, this is from the elk that Seth shot this year with his bow and arrow. He provided the meal for us tonight. So so they have a little pride in that and always have growing up. So, yeah, 100%, I know I gabbed a lot here, but, yeah, it, it, there are times I think you can push them too far, and I've really tried hard not to do that because uh, I think your first impulse is to do that. Perfect. Well, I got one last question for you, and then we'll wrap it up, and, and that is, what hunt this year are you looking forward to the most? Wow. Every single one of them. Dan, I know that's a cheese ball answer, but, I mean, if I'm, you know, I've got a squirrel hunt plan, and I'm really geeked about that. And, you know, me and the boys are, we've got some prairie dogs here on the ranch, and we're going to go out there and try and shoot them. And I'm pretty pumped about that. I've got a, you know, a, you know elk hunt. i got an antelope tag. i got a mule deer tag in Utah. I, really, I, I know this sounds cheese ball, but it's hard to say. There's just one that I'm more excited about than the other. Every one I'm, I'm, I'm pretty pumped about for different reasons, you know, whether it's who I'm going to be with or the country or, you know, right. where it's at. So, yeah, yeah it, it, there's not one that really I go, oh, man, I can't wait for that one because I can't wait for the next one. <laughs> right. Right, that makes perfect sense. That's the same way with me. I, you know, it's October 1st for me is opener here in Iowa, and that can't uh, get here soon enough. So. <laughs> Exactly. It's, that's the that's the passion we all have, and that's the, that, that's what I love about it. Well, I tell you what. Thank you very much for taking time out of your day to come on the podcast and BS with me for a while. Uh, it's appreciated. Hey, it was my pleasure. I enjoyed talking to you, and uh, good luck. Good luck hunting. And there you have it. Huge thanks to Fred Eichler for taking time out of his day to uh, come on the show and BS with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Then a huge, gigantic thank you to all of the listeners out there. Thank you guys very much for tuning in, taking the time to download and listen to the podcast. It's much appreciated. Huge shout out to Exodus Trail Cameras for, uh, you know, believing in the podcast. Thank you very much. And again, if you guys want to find out more information about Exodus, uh, be sure to visit exodusoutdoorgear.com. And as always, I want to make sure, you know, We are giving back more to conservation, and that's why everybody here needs to go check out 2% for Conservation. Other than that, hopefully uh, your Monday sucks just a little bit less after listening to this. Stay tuned uh, for the rest of this month. we got a ton more awesome podcasts going to be launched. And uh, with that said, if you guys haven't already, make sure you guys uh, check me out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, Make sure you guys go leave a review on uh, iTunes or in Stitcher, wherever you're downloading and listening to the podcast. And then uh, feel free to, uh, you know, visit the old uh, Facebook page, ask questions. Uh, You know, if you guys want me to review a product or 
when I say review, get that company on the podcast, you know, let me know who you guys want to hear from and I'll do my best to get that done. And if you guys have maybe a hunter profile, a, a story about a buck or an, an awesome hunting experience, and it doesn't have to be whitetails, it can be bear, it can be elk, it can be mule deer, it can be sheep. It, here's, a, here's an example. Um, I want to hear stories from people who do things different. And one thing, if you've ever been on an archery sheep hunt, for some reason, this is what I'm thinking about right now. I want you guys to contact me and tell your story. How many years it took you to get that tag, what the hunting was like, blah, 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 and uh, share that story or any story from any hunting adventure. That would be awesome as well. And if you guys have any products that you want to review, make sure you hit me up there and uh, we can get you on the show and you can review uh, you can review the podcast or review the, the products any product that relates to hunting but uh again thank you guys for tuning in and uh if you're in a tree wear your damn safety harness